0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and jump into our Bible study this evening. And we're going to be in Psalm 133, so you can click there on your smartphone or you can flip there if you're old school, and you like the feel of paper in your hands. And uh, we're going to be in Psalm 133. The title of my sermon is Making Unity a Reality. Making Unity a Reality. Now, now, this psalm is one of the Psalms of Ascent. If you've been walking with us, Sean and I, through this series, Heart Cries, where we're looking at the psalms, you've heard us talk about those psalms. I believe Sean taught out of one last week. And the Psalms of Ascent were a selection of songs that the Jewish people would sing as they made pilgrimage to Israel to celebrate the various feasts that peppered their calendar year. And so you might want to think of these songs. There are about 14 of them. Um, And I think it's Psalm 120 to 134, something like that. These were like the, the playlist for the Israelites, and everybody loved these songs, and I want you to just picture the Judean hillsides covered with caravans of travelers and throngs of pilgrims who are all camping out together, and they're they're festive, the mood is happy, the people are gathered together, and they're celebrating with one another, and there's music, and there's dancing, and the sound of laughter fills the air as all these people from all over the ancient world would converge for these feasts, and they would come together in the city of Jerusalem, and the population would swell. And, and so the, the, the composer of this song is no doubt looking out at a scene like that as his heart is just overflowed with joy at the thought of what he's about to experience, at the scene that is set before him. And he pulls out his quill or his pen and his ink and his parchment, and he begins to write a song and what comes out of his heart is Psalm 133. It's only three verses long, but don't let that fool you. I still have plenty to say about it. But here's what he writes. How good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Somebody say amen. Amen. It feels good to hear you say amen. Can we just say amen one more time like we mean it? Amen. Amen. It's good when God's people live together in unity. He goes on. He paints some pictures for us. He says, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So let's just work our way through this beautiful, short, poetic bit of prose. The psalmist begins by saying, how good and how pleasant is it for believers, for God's people to dwell together in unity? And since unity is the, the celebrative note that gets struck in this little song, I wanted to take a moment just to define that word. So here's how the dictionary defines the word unity for us. It defines it as being together or at one with someone or something. Being together or at one with someone or something. That's pretty vague, isn't it? And and there's nothing Christian or godly about that definition per se, right? Um, The truth of the matter is, people unite over all kinds of causes and issues. Some of them are good, some are bad, right? In In the Gospels, for example, you'll find three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians all uniting and coming together in in this shared desire of wanting to see Jesus crucified. Now, the interesting thing about that is those three groups, they were typically, usually, enemies, but they found common ground in their hatred of Jesus. So that's obviously an example of a bad kind of unity. But look just about anywhere in our world and you'll find groups gathering, people uniting or coming together to either celebrate a cause or a shared passion. Sometimes they'll gather and unite in order to push an agenda or to bring an awareness to an issue or to promote a political candidate. People unite over all kinds of things. And we all recognize how important unity is. As a matter of fact... For a number of years, for almost 200 years, the national motto of our country was this phrase, e pluribus unum. It's Latin for out of the many, one. And and you'll find that phrase even on our national seal to this day. So if you've ever flipped over a dollar bill, for example, and looked at that, the weird pictures on the back, you'll see this eagle with a ribbon in its beak, and you'll find that phrase, e pluribus unum. And that's what it means, out of the many one, and it was born out of our founding father's desire to see a a United States, these states that were supposed to be both independent and interconnected, autonomous and and also collective, self-governing and submitted to one another. And so we all get how important unity is, but it's also difficult to achieve. That's why we have the United Nations. It's this attempt to bring people together. It's why politicians are constantly talking about the need to cross the aisle. It's why activists are always talking about the the importance of building bridges, and it's why artists like Bob Marley and the Whalers sing songs like, one love, one heart, let's get together and feel all right. If only it were that easy, though, right? one love, one heart, let's get together. If it were that simple, then we would have achieved unity a long time ago. But unfortunately, you know as well as I do that wanting unity and walking in unity are two very different things. We need something deeper, something realer, something rooted in something more foundational and lasting. And that's what we find here in this psalm. You see, what I love about Psalm 133 is it's not just a celebration of unity in a general sense. The psalmist is careful to specify for us where this kind of unity can be found. He says, the unity that I'm talking about that's truly, really good and pleasant is a unity that can only be experienced when God's people come together. Those of you who are believers in here, you know what I'm talking about. There is just a shared bond a unity that you can experience with another believer that is a brother or a sister in Christ, and you can just go deeper with that person more quickly than you could with just about anyone else. Now, now the reason for that is, is this. The unity that the world builds is predicated upon shared interests, common values, or maybe passions that they, they both believe in. But the unity that we get to experience as believers is rooted in something so much deeper. It's rooted in the understanding that we are part of a family. We have the same God who is our father. Listen, John put it like this in the first chapter of his gospel, John chapter one, verse 12. He said, as many as believe in him, he gave the right to them to be called the sons and the daughters of God. Now that creates a bond between us that goes deeper than just about any other bond that is out there, right? They say that blood is thicker than water. Well, spiritual bonds, sometimes those are even thicker than blood. And, And as believers in Christ, if you're a believer in here tonight, you're my brother and my sister, and I'm gonna spend eternity with you in heaven. We share the same Abba, Father, up in heaven. We have the same passions and desires and goals. We we share the same eternal destiny. It's what led the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians to write this. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Is that enough ones for you? Did you count how many times Paul talked about this oneness that we share? Don't worry, I did it for you. Seven times. Seven times Paul talks about how united we are in Christ. The point is, while we all come in here with a lot of differences, and let's just call it what it is, we are are different ducks. for whatever differences we have, the things that bind us together, the common things that we share outweigh those things by far, and it creates unity. So as we continue to look at the psalm, he, he talks about how good and pleasant unity is, and then he goes on to describe it using a couple of different pictures. And the first picture is in verse 2, where he compares unity to this oil that flows down from the crown of Aaron's head and onto his beard and down off his robes and pools at his feet. It's a beautiful picture. Then in verse three, he uses another picture. He talks about the dew on Mount Hermon. And he says, if that could be transferred over to Judah, that's what unity is like. And we're like, what? (laughs) I mean, these illustrations, these pictures might not hit our ears with the same force that they would have hit the ears of his original audience. So let's just talk through them really quick. Aaron was Israel's first high priest. He was Moses' brother, and he was Israel's first high priest. So as such, he would go before the people and, and deliver God's word to them, and he would represent the people to the Lord. And in order to be um, you know, cleared for service in the Lord's temple, he had to be anointed for that service. And the picture they used to symbolize this anointing was oil, and they would pour the oil on him and it would flow down off of him and pool at his feet. And the picture for us is this. The psalmist is telling us that where unity is expressed and experienced, the the spirit feels the freedom to move and minister. So there is a freedom in the house of the Lord where God's people come together and they are unified in their praise and worship of God. The spirit finds that environment irresistible and it's extremely conducive to the ministry and the free flow of his work in our lives. He goes on, he says, it's like the dew on Mount Hermon. Now, obviously Israel is in an arid, hot, dry desert place. And so for most of the year, most of Israel is pretty brown and dry and barren and dead, with one exception. Mount Hermon is one of the tallest peaks in Israel. It's 9,500 feet high, and and with its elevation, it means that it, it gets a lot of moisture. In fact, there's this thick blanket of dew that surrounds that mountain all year long. So even in the dry seasons, when the rest of Israel is barren and bone dry, Mount Hermon is lush and luxuriant. And the picture for us is is so striking. When we walk in unity with other believers, we become immune to the dry seasons of life. Life brings heat, it brings sun, it it, it has a way of parching us. But when we walk in unity and live in unity, there is just a freedom of movement of the spirit where he ministers to us and we just, we flourish in that life. So those are the two pictures that get painted for us. And when we turn to the New Testament, because I want to add a third picture that that Paul paints for us to describe what unity is like, and and, and he paints this picture of the body for us to describe just how interconnected we are as believers. He writes about it in his letter to the Corinthians, and and here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 14. He writes, there's one body, but it has many parts but all its many parts make up just one body. It's the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit and so we're formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people, we were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not made up of just one part, has many parts. And I love that picture, did you catch what Paul said? We're one body with many parts. E pluribus unum. And the thing that I love about this picture is, is it paints this, this visual for us of unified diversity. You see, one of the things that a lot of people balk at it with, when it comes to unity is they're afraid that it's going to strip them of their individuality. They think that unity is the same thing as uniformity. But that's not what Paul says. He says, we're like a body. Now, in a body, there, there's all kinds of different body parts and each one serves a unique and specific role and it carries out a specific function but it serves the purpose of the whole and some parts are visible and others they're invisible but just because they're invisible doesn't mean they're any less important in fact some of the parts of your body that you can't see are the most important right none of us are wanting to go through life without our heart and lungs and liver and you can't see any of those things even so in the body of Christ It's not always the visible parts of the body that are the most important. Sometimes it's those unseen saints doing the warrior work of spiritual warfare on their knees, praying before God and waging warfare in the spiritual arena that nobody sees them. Nobody knows their name. They're not on CBN. They don't get a lot of airtime in Christian circles, but these are the heroes of heaven. And, And so Paul says, that's, that's the picture. It's unity. It's. All these parts working together harmoniously to carry out the wishes and desires of the head who is Christ. One more thought on the body before we move on. And my dad shared this on Sunday, I just thought it was so perfect, especially considering what we're dealing with in the world right now, and he talked about how when you hit your thumb with a hammer, your thumb throbs, but what else hurts? Everything. It's like the rest of your body empathizes and sympathizes with the pain that your thumb is feeling in that moment. Even so, as we see part of our body grieving and suffering injustice right now, I'm talking about the African American community, I think the appropriate and right response for the people of God is to join with them in that suffering and to say, we're grieving with you even as you grieve. That's what it means to be part of a body. We hurt with those who hurt, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly with one another. So that's what it means to be part of a body, and that's the picture that gets painted. But so what? What's the point? Do we celebrate unity just because unity's great? Is unity only good for unity's sake? No, 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 there's a purpose to this unity that God wants us to share and experience. the, the psalmist talks about it in verse three. He says, for there, where, for there, where, where the, the, the Lord sees God's people dwelling together in unity, that's where the Lord bestows his blessing. And what is that blessing? Even life forevermore. And I want you to pick up on something because I think this is so key and so important. In this verse, the psalmist is connecting two ideas He's connecting this idea of unity and life forevermore. By the way, this is the first mention of eternal life that you'll find in the Bible. So that's significant because the first mention, the rule of first mention sets the paradigm for how that word gets used throughout the rest of scripture. So here, life forevermore is attached to this unity. It's as though God were saying through the psalmist that where God's people come together, life forevermore. Flourishes and life flows, and people find new life. And it's not just something that we read about here in Psalm 133. Jesus, of all people, picked up on this and he elaborates further on it for us in, in John 17. Now, this is tri- a trip, and it's something I've just been thinking through and tripping out on. In John 17, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, it's a sacred chapter in the Bible. And I'll tell you why. Because in John 17, Jesus is praying for you and for me. Think about that. Jesus prayed for those who would come to believe in him through the witness of the disciples. That's us. So we're wondering, what did Jesus pray for us? Don't you want to know? I know I certainly do. And here's what we find. Interestingly, of all the things that might occupy Jesus' attention, The thing that was uppermost in his thoughts and on his mind when he prayed for those who would come to believe in him was unity. Listen to what Jesus prayed. This is in uh, John 17 verses 20 through 23. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, again that's us, that, listen, all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me. May they be brought, listen, to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch what Jesus said? Father, bring them into complete unity. Why? so that the world will know that you have sent me. That's curious, isn't it? Jesus didn't say, Father, help them to preach powerful sermons that might win the world. He didn't say, Father, help them to come up with incredible worship songs that might wow the world. No, he said, Father, help them to experience complete unity because when the world sees a unified church, they're going to want to know what is the glue that binds you together, and that will give you a platform from which you're able to speak life into those people's hearts, and they'll come to know me through their witness. So unity brings life. It leads the outside world to want to know Jesus. In his book, Why Did Anyone Become a Christian During the First Three Centuries?, Historian and author Larry Hurtado delves into this topic. Well, it's in the title. Why did anyone become a believer in the first three centuries? He notes in the beginning of the book about all the things that were stacked against the early church, all the problems that they faced, all of the hurdles that they had to overcome. They were small. They were unorganized. They were ill-equipped. They were under-resourced. They had nothing going for them. They had no budget, they had no buildings, they had no business plan. And yet somehow miraculously, the church survived and even thrived during the first three centuries of the new age in a time when they were experiencing intense persecution. So how did it happen? In his book, Hurtado points to several things, but one of the things he talks about is that it was the unity that the church exhibited that attracted the outside world. They were a welcoming community, he says, and that stood out amidst the culture of Rome, which was built around status and position. They were also a multiracial, Multicultural, multi generational community that welcomed outsiders regardless of their position or class or social status. Of course, that kind of thing was unheard of in the ancient world. The church was also a place where you could go in and you would see blacks and whites, young and old, slave and free, men and women all worshiping together. All of this led one ancient observer from the time to famously remark, see how they love one another. And it was this commonality, this unity, this love that helped Christianity spread like wildfire. Who wouldn't want to be part of a community like that? So we see the picture of unity. We see the purpose, the power of unity on display. So why aren't we experiencing more of it? Like here in our own church, for that matter. Why, why are there still so many fractions and divisions and within the body of Christ? Well, let's talk about the problem. You see, the problem is that unity is, is beautiful, but it's also fragile. It's precious, but it has to be cared for and cultivated and nurtured. Otherwise, it just kind of disappears. It's not the kind of thing that occurs naturally and spontaneously and just flourishes all on its own. No, no, no. This is why the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians said, strive to maintain the unity that you share. Another translation has work, or rather make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. That's, that's the, the language of of effort and work. In other words, it's not gonna be easy. But Paul seems to be telling us it's absolutely worth it. But why is it such hard work? Now, there are a couple of reasons why. And the first one is the devil, right? The devil knows how powerful unity is and so he's going to aim all of his arsenal at this thing that he knows is such a threat to him and his kingdom. And so the devil wants to divide, the devil wants to diffuse, the devil wants to distract us. The saying, a house divided against itself can't stand, is often attributed to our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, but he didn't come up with that. It was actually Jesus who said that, and Jesus, actually, when he said it, he was talking about the kingdom of Satan. He was being accused of driving out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? A house that's divided against itself can't stand. So why would Satan drive out Satan? But but the inverse of that is equally true. If it's true that a house divided can't stand, a church that's divided can't flourish. For that matter, a family that's divided won't flourish. A nation, a community that's divided can't flourish. Satan knows this, which is why he's constantly coming against us. He's trying to drive wedges between us. As a matter of fact, one of the names that Satan is called by is the name Diablo, right? El Diablo. It's Spanish, right? And the name Diablo, it means to splinter, Isn't that a perfect description of what the devil does? He drives wedges. He splinters. He's constantly dividing us. There's this old fable about an an ancient king who decided to test his three sons to see who was best suited to rule his kingdom after he was gone. And so he called them into his his uh, I don't know if he had office. He called them up before his throne one by one, and he handed them a uh, a, a, a group of sticks that were tied together and, and told him to break them apart. And the first son came and took the, the, the thing of sticks and he's trying to break it and he can't break it. The next son comes and does the same thing. But the third son who'd been observing the other two brothers came in last and he untied the ribbon and took each stick out one by one and began to break it. And the father knew, ah, oh, that's the wisdom that I need to rule this kingdom. But it's also the strategy of the enemy. He knows that united We're strong, but divided, we fall. That's why we have to make every effort to maintain the unity that is already ours because it's our inheritance through Christ. The devil is against that. But while I would love to lay all the blame at the feet of the devil, I'm afraid I can't do that. We must shoulder some of the blame ourselves. We do plenty of the devil's work for him. And as long as we're talking about things that hinder unity among the body of Christ we have to look in the mirror and we have to see what part am I playing in all of that and it's not a comfortable look it was none other than the late great Martin Luther King Jr. who said this when we look at modern man we we have to face the fact that modern man suffers from a kind of poverty of the spirit which stands in glaring contrast with a scientific and technological abundance We've learned to fly the air as birds. We've learned to swim the seas as fish, yet we haven't yet learned to walk the earth as brothers and sisters. That's so sad but true, isn't it? We fight, we bicker, we take secondary issues and we thrust them into the spotlight and we make them more important and give them more airtime than they deserve. We refuse to adopt a spirit of humility We refuse to put others first. And so we we fight for our own rights and our own wills and our own ways. And in doing so, we drive wedges between the body of Christ. And it's just dumb. So where does all of that leave us? with so many forces, both external and internal, fighting against this unity that we all agree we desperately need and desire. It's the solution to all the ills that plague humanity. So how do we get there? How do we experience it? Is it even possible? I want to finish by talking to you about the possibility of unity. And it is possible, but not in our own strength, right? There is no amount of human goodwill that can generate the kind of unity that will bring lasting change to this world. We can't legislate unity. Legislation is good, but you can't legislate a changed heart. You, you, you can't lobby for this kind of unity. Activism is important, but it's not enough on its own. We can write songs that talk about unity, but those won't work in themselves either. The only hope that this world has for lasting and true unity is the cross of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. (laughs) Here's how Paul put it in his letter to the Ephesians. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, listen, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Let's just think for a moment about what that verse is saying, the possibility that it paints. It's saying that Jesus tore down The wall of hostility that existed. That's such a powerful picture, right? We we think of walls and the purposes that walls serve. Walls exist to keep them out and us safe in here. And in these verses that we just looked at, Paul spoke of a dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. As a matter of fact, In the ancient temple, there was a a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the area where the Jews were allowed to enter. And and on that wall, it it had a, a sign that said, no Gentiles. But don't think that this is just a Jewish and Gentile issue. We all build walls in our lives. And they're not all built or made with brick and mortar, are they? Some of those walls are racial. Some of them are socioeconomic, some of them are national, some of them are cultural, some of them are tribal. We build all kinds of walls. And what this text is telling us is that Jesus came to tear down the walls. He came like a giant wrecking ball into the ancient world and everywhere that he went, he reached on the other side of those barricades that in often cases, the religious establishment of the day had erected. And he reached out in love to the lost and those who others thought were outside the realm of God's love. And he said, God does love you, and I'm going to be his hand to you. He walked up to a Samaritan woman, and and in one conversation, tore down walls that had existed for centuries. He, He called both a tax collector and a zealot to follow him. And in doing so, he tore down barriers and walls of hostility. He loved prostitutes and ate with tax collectors and sinners. He touched lepers and cured diseases and reached out in love to the unclean. And every time he did so, more walls came down. But the greatest wall that Jesus tore down was also the biggest bridge that he built. Because when he climbed up on the cross and paid for the sins of the world and cried out, it is finished. He was tearing down the wall that separated humanity from God, but he was also establishing a bridge by which we might make our way into God's presence. So now we have access to God, and the foot of the ground at the cross is, is level, and we all get on our knees, and we say, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus didn't just do that for us, but now he has made us, you and I, listen to this, ministers of reconciliation. So we carry that bridge with us. We carry that sledgehammer with us. And we're commissioned by God to tear down those walls and to build those bridges, even as Jesus did. And when we do that, unity will flourish. And where there is unity, the spirit moves and ministers. And where there is unity, life flourishes and flows. And where there is unity, unbelievers are gathered together and come to know Christ. It's a powerful thing. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.